Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! Political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we're exploring what it takes to make meaningful change in such a divided country. I'm Van Jones. Now, look, I have lived in California for a long time now. I'm from Tennessee, but I have lived in California for now most of my life. It's where I started my activist journey it's where I began uh, working on criminal justice. It's where I'm raising my kids. Uh, so California means a lot to me. Uh, and it means an awful lot to my guest today, Congresswoman Karen Bass. Uh, she was actually born and raised in Los Angeles in the 1990s when I first heard about her. She co-founded something called the Community Coalition, which is incredible, still around. This is grassroots alliance uh, for social justice. She saw her neighbors were struggling with this crisis of of drugs and and crime and violence in L.A. at that time. And she built this unbelievable coalition that's still doing great work today. And then she went on to serve in the California State Assembly. State government here was the first black woman to be the Speaker of the House, not just for California, but for any legislative body, state legislative body in the country ever. And then she went on to become a congresswoman in the federal level. Today, she's running for mayor of Los Angeles, and she wants to help uh, the unhoused population. She wants to get our communities more uh, peaceful. She wants to reform policing, and she also sees the need for police in our communities to make them safer. She's been a grassroots activist, and she's been an elected official. I could go on and on and on. And she's able to build bridges. She's able to talk to people, you know, rich, poor, left, right, and get stuff done. Um, because she's a very nuanced thinker. She's not just a soundbite machine. She's a very nuanced thinker, and that has been a strength for her. And so whatever city you're living in, you may not live in Los Angeles, you got problems, and we need solutions. You know, what can we do about homelessness or houselessness? Is that a problem you can, you can even fix? You know, instead of defunding the police, what would it mean to refund the community? Uh, we talk about that. You know, she's got decades of experience with big ideas and actually getting them to solutions, which is why I really want to have her here, have her be a part of this conversation. I think more people like her, who you know, serve from the grassroots all the way to the top of our government, need more opportunities to be heard. And I think the country needs more ideas that come from people like her. So stick around for my conversation with Congresswoman Karen Bass right after this break. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Uh, we have known each other for a very long time, and so we'll get into some of all that, that good uh, long history. But you are, in my mind, a demonstration of both the power and the peril of the word and. In an either or world, <laughs> you are the bridge builder, you're the and. And so that's why I wanted you on uh, this podcast. And we're about the bridge builders. We're about the problem solvers. We're about the people who are trying to find a way out of no way. You've been doing that for your whole whole career. I don't even call it a career, your whole calling in public life. Let's talk about you for a minute. You didn't start off as as a as a congresswoman. You didn't start off as somebody who's, you know, the leading candidate for mayor. You didn't start off as somebody who was the head of the Congressional Black Caucus at a time when it was most effective or who was the first black woman to be the speaker of any assembly in these United States ever in history. You didn't start off with any of that stuff. <laughs> you started off as a grassroots activist working with the people who have the least, the most offer in their hearts, but the least in their pocketbook, and making real change from the very bottom up. Talk a little bit about your days with the Community Coalition and why you started knocking on doors and meeting in community centers and all the stuff that I knew you from doing back in the 90s and what you learned from those days that will help you be a mayor. Absolutely. And, and uh, Van, ironically, the reasons that I formed the Community Coalition really are the same reasons why I chose not to run for Congress and I'm running for mayor. The crisis during those years was the Crips, the Bloods, crack cocaine, and a thousand homicides. I was teaching at USC Medical School. Comfortable job, could have been long retired from by now, but I became obsessed over what crack was doing, especially to the African-American population. Because not only did we have crack that was killing people, we also had AIDS and we had no treatment for it. Didn't even know how it was transmitted at the time. So we were watching a lot of people die. So I felt like I needed to leave my teaching job. I needed to go to the heart of South Central and I needed to figure out how do we address crime, violence, addiction without just locking people up? Because to me, crack was a health issue. Addiction, I saw as a health problem. I saw the violence as a public health issue, basically rooted in, in uh, economic and social problems. And so I started the Community Coalition to try to figure out how to address crime 
without locking everybody up. And that means preventing crime from happening. That means looking at the root causes. Obviously, if a crime takes place, you have to deal with it. But I want to prevent the next five crimes from happening. Deal with the crime that took place, but address the future crimes. And so we pioneered a number of strategies. And several of those strategies have been adopted, researched, refined, and replicated. What are some things you're most proud of from those days? You said some of the things have been replicated. Just mention a couple of those things so people understand that you're, you are a practical problem solver. Oh, sure. Uh, recruiting high school students and taking the normal behavior of an adolescent, which is to rebel, and channeling that rebellion into activism. And we didn't have any models for youth organizing during those years. I actually based the model on how I grew up because I actually started as an activist in middle school. And uh, I went to a political high school that nurtured my activism. So I said, why can't we use the same logic, you know, in inner city South Central? So that's one. And so that that strategy has been replicated in youth programs, you know, around the country. Working with gang members, I figured if people in recovery would become zealots and work on getting other people clean and sober, if we worked with people who were formerly gang involved or who were formerly drug involved from the trafficking side, you know, there were drug dealers that we worked with who had transitioned from the illegal to the legal. And, uh, and we have a long history of this in our country. Uh, one is called Las Vegas that had been run by a criminal element and transitioned into legal. And so uh, we worked with former gang members. We worked with people who had trafficked uh, drugs, uh, who had changed their life, saw that the problems that they caused the community were very remorseful and wanted to give back to the community in positive ways. And so we involved them. And that eventually, over time, evolved into the community intervention workers that we have today who were formerly gang-involved, and now they serve as interrupters. And so those are a couple of ideas that, that we started that have been refined and replicated. You know, it's so interesting that now, in the 2020s, the idea of violence interrupters, credible messengers, those of us in the, the, the community change field, this is now standard stuff. It wasn't in the 90s. You know, you guys had to figure this stuff out in real time with sirens blaring, with police tape, with funerals, trying to figure out what can we do. We know you can't rely on the LAPD to come in because there's no trust. And yet you can't keep going to these funerals. And you came up with ways of working with the young people and the gang members, the folks that everybody said was a problem. You saw them as a solution. Well, absolutely, because they're they're members of our community. I mean, I remember the other thing that we didn't have back then is we didn't have social justice nonprofits. So even starting community coalition, you know, most of our activist work was done on an ad hoc basis. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of progressive activists at the time shunned the idea of having a 501c3 because then you were connected to the government. And then they definitely shunned community coalition because we got actual government money. But to me, I said, you know what? I'd love to be pure, but the bottom line is people are dying on our streets. And so while you're off being pure and while you're worried about the CIA's involvement in cocaine and you don't want to talk about crack, people are dying because of crack. Crack was the first time we had a drug epidemic that impacted women equal to men. That had not happened before. And so families fell apart and there was a real huge escalation of kids in the foster care system. That's what got me involved in foster care. I didn't know anything about foster care until crack. 
So all of those social problems, unfortunately, at the time, progressives were like, well, we need to focus on the CIA involvement in, in, in crack. I'm like, no, people are dying. We got to figure it out. You know, at a certain point, you were able to decide to run for office. And I remember, because I, I was in Northern California, I was doing my work in Oakland and, and San Francisco. You were down uh, here in L.A. And they said that you were going to run. And that was shocking mm-hmm. because... To me, too. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were people who were Democratic Party type of people, and they would always be the ones that ran. And sometimes we vote for them, sometimes we hold our nose. But the idea that somebody from the community level, somebody who, who really knew what was happening was going to run and go to the state legislature and it wouldn't be us out there protesting them, that one of us would actually be inside making laws. That was really shocking. So, so what made you decide to run for office? And the reason was because term limits were instituted and we had spent, you know, 12 years working with the city council. We got them to understand what the problems in the community were and we had a good relationship back and forth. And then we realized that when the city councilman was going to term out, we were going to lose that. And the person that was the leading candidate to run was really going to reverse a lot of the gains we had made. And so that compelled us to challenge. I ultimately did not run that time, but I went back to Community Coalition and the head of the labor movement at the time, Miguel Contreras, approached me and said, you know what, we need a progressive in Sacramento. And I'm like, oof, I don't want to go up there. And then uh, Diane Watson called me and said, you know what, there's no African-American women in the state legislature. And so those two things made me consider it. And so then I went up to Sacramento and I talked to people that I knew there. And I realized that I could work on the same issues in Sacramento that I was working on in South Central. And my whole goal with forming Community Coalition was to create to build, to train, and to lead, just like you did. Because I think it's really important to leave organizations, but to leave them in strong standing with good, solid leadership, because I believe that our movement for social and economic justice is never going to end. And so if it's never going to end, you have to be equally as invested as to who's coming behind so you can pass that baton while you move to a different place. You go from working with these kind of unlikely allies at the grassroots level, young folks, former gang members, et cetera, getting things done, being able to to even work with folks at the city council level. And then now you are in the state legislature and you become the first black female speaker of the House, not just in California, but of any state. People think about California as this big blue state. It's not. it's, It's blue in a couple of small spots. And other than that, it's a big red state. And you got to be able to work with people of, when I say every race, I mean, California has every kind of human being ever born, every faith, every, I mean, to be able to be the Speaker of the House here, you've got to be able to work with all kind of folks. What did you learn in that role, that historic role as Speaker of the House here that you think would be useful to you as mayor? Well, most importantly, I had to make really hard, painful decisions And it was heartbreaking because when I went to Sacramento, my whole goal was to expand programs, especially safety net programs. And then I get in the catbird seat and we have a $40 billion deficit that if we do not solve, the state is going to default. And so I had to cut the very programs that were the basis for why I ran. But my thinking was it was better to cut the programs 
rather than do what some people wanted us to do, which was dismantle programs and just do away with chunks of the safety net. Because my view was if we cut when the economy is better, we will restore. And that did happen. A few years later, when the economy turned around, those programs were not only restored, but they were expanded on. I just missed the opportunity (laughs) to do that. But I laid the basis for somebody to come behind me and do that. You were able to save them. You know, sometimes you have to, to, to shrink something to save it, but you're able to save it, and then somebody else is able to, to restore it. You know, this idea that people can't get things done, that people can't work together, you know, it's gotten to be almost a United States of cynicism where people just say, listen, that, why even try? You know, you left California, you went to Congress, and you, you were not cynical at all. Uh, can you talk about your time in Congress Talk a little bit about what you learned as a bridge builder. Well, and I will tell you, Van, when I was elected, I was so excited to go because Obama was in the White House. We controlled the Senate and the House. I get there, we lose 65 seats and the Tea Party takes over. But you know what? Um, what I did, and it goes back to making a way out of no way. When I got there, I wanted to work on foster care. I realized that there was no avenue from which for me to do that. I convened all of the national foster care organizations, foster youth organizations, and I realized that there was no representation from the young people in the system. So making a way out of no way, I started my own organizations. (laughs) I I formed a, a caucus in Congress, the Congressional Caucus on Foster Youth, which still exists, bipartisan caucus, and it's, it's composed of members of Congress who are all interested in this issue. That's the vehicle to do internal organizing. And then I started the National Foster Youth Institute, which is the vehicle to do external organizing. And it's composed of young people 18 and above who've aged out of the foster care system. And it's a national organization. We're headquartered in D.C. and Los Angeles. And we recruit young people from around the country to come to D.C. to shadow their member of Congress. We train them in community organizing techniques and strategies. We teach them how to strategically use their story, their personal story, to impact policy. So now, you know, when COVID happened, none of us around the world knew what the heck was going on, what to do. And we were just throwing in Congress, throwing spaghetti on the wall in terms of, well, let's do this. Let's hope it works, blah, 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 blah. But everybody forgot about the foster youth. You remember when the universities told everybody to go home? Well, some people didn't have a home to go to. So the young folks in the National Foster Youth Institute organized themselves, called us up and said, look, you guys are forgetting us. This is what we need. We got together on a bipartisan basis and did what they needed. They needed us to do things like, for example, let them stay in foster care longer. Don't cut them off in the middle of a pandemic because what are they supposed to do? Increase their access to health care because when I age out of foster care, my health care falls through the cracks and I'm not covered. In the course of of the uh, two years, though, we did lose one of the young leaders uh, to COVID who didn't, didn't survive. And we named a bill after him, actually, DJ's Law, which is a, a bill to allow foster youth to continue their health care, even if they leave the state from where they were in the system. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, when a, a kid goes into the foster care system, that means, you know, their mom's not there for them for whatever reason, their dad's not there for them for whatever reason. They're really uh, thrown overboard into real peril. 
they become a part of someone else's family. They right. get brought into someone else's, hopefully. hopefully someone else's family, or maybe they're in a more of an institutional setting. But the day they turn 18, they're out. Exactly. And a lot of kids wind up in real trouble the day after their birthday. Most because, of them. Because, yeah. And so uh, the idea that, you know, you were able to, on a bipartisan basis, touch the hearts of Congress and get something done, I think is really important. Well, and, and my belief in terms of how you bring about change is you need an inside and an outside strategy. But the way I have, have worked in Congress is, is that I identify the members of Congress and we have common ground. You talk about a bridge, building a bridge. Now, some of the guys and gals I work with, we don't talk about anything else. We just talk about <laughs> foster care and that's fine. Right. <laughs> I keep my eyes on the prize. I don't listen to what they say on Fox that night, whatever. We care about the kids in the system. That's our point of commonality and it, and it works. And, and that's the way I think you build bridge. You don't sit there and look for ideological purity. You are pragmatic and say, it's on this issue, can we talk? Well, let's talk a little bit about pragmatism and, you know, and maybe circle back around to this idea of policing in America. You know, the George Floyd situation, you know, reopened, I think, the country's eyes. The country's, you know, eyes were open during the Rodney King period a long time ago, but, you know, reopened uh, people's eyes. And yet, You've been criticized by some progressives here in L.A. because you haven't been tough enough on police and policing. Uh, the defund the police slogan uh, has not been tattooed on your uh, arm, as best I can tell. I don't think you I don't think you have defund the police written on your car. <laughs> I don't think it's your favorite slogan in the history of American politics. So how do you deal with that? At the same time, um, you know, trying to get something done in Congress, things were stymied from maybe from the right so let's talk about you know, how you make sense of the police reform efforts that uh, we've all been trying to move forward. Let's talk about how uh, you respond to some of your critics on the left, and let's talk about some of the challenges on the right. Well, I think that, you know, on the left, people would like for me to commit to reducing the police budget. To me, and, and what I said is, is that there's no way I could agree to cut the police budget when you have crime increasing. And I frankly believe that we are at risk of losing so much ground with reforms if we are dogmatic about the reforms, if we do not acknowledge that crime has increased and has to be addressed. And I certainly believe in restorative justice, and I think that there's many examples of where restorative justice can be used as a strategy to avoid incarceration or to avoid arrests. But there are some cases when it can't be used. And I think that you have to have an answer. What do you do to the person that robs the bank? What do you do? And so I feel like if you are dogmatic about your positions and if you cannot see the difference of timing right now, you take the issue of crime and you hand it over to the right wing because they're the only ones that are going to say we have to address crime. I think those of us on our side of the fence have got to learn have got to understand, have got to figure out how to articulate what do we do when crime happens so that we don't give away the reforms at the same time. Because what the right wing is using, like they used with defund, they use that to say, that's why crime has increased, because you've defunded the police, you demoralized the police, now they don't want to work anymore, they're quitting, we need to untie 
the, the hands of the police and let them go back to doing what they were doing before. We have to figure out how to address both things. And I feel if we don't, then we are conceding the issue to conservatives and we are going to lose the reforms we've spent the last three decades fighting for. For me, it's just been painful <laughs> mm-hmm. to, to go from 20, 30 million Americans, and the vast majority of them, by the way, white, <laughs> marching in the middle of a pandemic saying, hey, I may not have known before that you know there were police getting away with this type of stuff, but I know it now and I don't like it. I want something done. And then to be in a place where, you know, less than two years later, it's almost as if we had gotten a thousand reforms done <laughs> and they didn't work. And now they have to be rolled back. Well, hold on a second. We didn't get the reforms done. <laughs> like we never got a chance <laughs> to actually do some of the stuff people were marching for. And it's being rolled back. One of the, I think the big challenges that I see is that when you say defund the police, some people think we actually did defund the police. You know, the, the defund the police uh, slogan has even followed you into the halls of Congress. Well, you know, in, in L.A., for example, they did uh, shift funding from the police and moved it to social services. And the right wing grabbed it. And every time there is a hearing in judiciary where I serve, Jim Jordan talks about how L.A. defunded the police. I have to speak up every single time to say L.A. did not defund the police. But we have to figure out how to navigate this. And, and Van, what happened was unpredictable. We knew this was going to happen. You and I have been around long enough. We know that social movements ebb and flow. We know that they never just stay in the flow, period. But you have to plan for the ebb. And you know the ebb is going to come and crime cycles up and down, up and down. We didn't prepare for what to do when it cycled up. You know, to me, the moment when you've got millions of people marching for the first time, a good slogan unites your your team and divides the other team. <laughs> a bad slogan divides your team and unites the other team. <laughs> and, exactly. And I, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that the defund the police slogan wound up dividing our team, some of those people who are out there marching for, you know, hey, don't choke black people and get away with it. Don't beat black people and get away with it. They were not going to be inspired by the idea of now take a lot of money away from, from the cops. They wanted to take some of the bad cops and put them in jail, but they weren't prepared to stay with a, a movement that was going to say we don't need any police, which is what it sounded like, like people were saying. I think a, a better slogan should have been refund the communities because that's what they were getting at. Really, what we have done as a society over the last couple of decades, two or three decades, is we've shredded the social safety net. And when people fall through the cracks for social, economic, or health reasons, we expect the police to come pick up the pieces. And and the most extreme example is mental health. I looked at about 100 officer-involved deaths after George Floyd, and I would say 30 to 40% of them were mental health calls, where a family dials 911, and then they have to pray. That the, that the police officer doesn't come and kill their family member. And so because we do not have a mental health system in this country, we expect the police to pick up the pieces on all social ills that we do not address. That would have been a more productive slogan, I think, that would have united. Or, or even, I always say, demilitarize the police. You know, like it's in, in anything that would 
give you some sense that there was a bridge too far, <laughs> but that you fundamentally need the cops. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. On the Nintendo Switch system, you can team up with friends in Super Mario Brothers Wonder. Where you can meet talking flowers. Life's full of surprises. And where piranha plants sing. And where Mario, Luigi, and Peach turn into elephants. Wowie, Zowie! And where this announcer turns into a... Super tiny announcer! <laughs> That's not in the game. <clears throat> Sorry, got a little excited. Nintendo Switch, the home of Mario and friends. Game rated E for everyone. Game and systems sold separately. You know, you're running for, for a mayor at a tough time, uh, I think, for progressives. There's a lot of kind of, you know, backlash and, and disillusion, disappointment. Talk a little bit about why you're running for mayor and what do you think the stakes are in a city like Los Angeles if the, the kind of anti-progressive backlash sort of wins the day? Well, uh, absolutely. The reason why I'm running is exactly that. The fact that we knew the tide was going to turn. And Van, you remember when the nation, the world, was in the height of the George Floyd uh, protests, demanding police reform, finally talking about systemic racism. But you and I have been around the block long enough to know that that was going to dissipate. And then the next thing that was going to happen was a reaction. And so the big reason why I decided not to run for Congress again and to come home was because I saw that backlash potentially happening here. Because in Los Angeles, we have above 40,000 people who live in tents, tent encampments, little communities that, that have been created under most of the freeways, in a lot of the streets, in all neighborhoods. I don't care how wealthy the neighborhood is or how poor the neighborhood is. And to me, that is a recipe to say, you know what? We can't be bothered with these reforms. We need to go back to the way we were doing things before. And you and I know what happened to our communities when there are backlashes, and especially the big one that I recall, which was in the 90s, which was when the latest version of the war on drugs was launched. And basically, the only thing politicians had to offer were sentencing laws that devastated communities. You know, I think this is, this is where somebody with your background really needs a space to talk because everything gets reduced to a soundbite. And for people who don't live here in Los Angeles, what has been happening is that uh, we do have this crisis of homelessness or houselessness, uh, which is just heartbreaking. And there has been an uptick in some crime. You know, you've seen, you know, the, especially in the local news, they show, you know, people running into stores and grabbing stuff and getting away with it or even carjackings. And so there's a sense in L.A. that there's something wrong and that we need to get, we need to do something. The question is, what do you do? And there is always this tendency to say, okay, well, listen, screw this. Bring down the hard hammer. Uh, lock everybody up. Sweep the streets. Get these people out of here. 
you know, uh, it's time to get tough. It's time to crack down. Or you have people trying to defend the status quo and say, hey, well, don't do that. But they have no answers. <laughs> exactly. And so. Exactly and, right. And, I, and I, I see your campaign as being, again, neither nor. <laughs> you're not saying we should just keep doing what we've been doing. But you're also saying let's not crack down on people and make things worse. What should we do? What, what could be done to make a positive difference? Thank you uh, so much for distilling it in, in the way that you did. You know, I mean, I, first of all, let's just talk about the problem of the unhoused and then let's talk about, you know, public safety. And uh, you have people that are unhoused for a variety of reasons. Some are economic, veterans, former foster youth, people suffering from substance abuse, mental illness. Uh, there's a variety of reasons. People who were formerly incarcerated and were released and can't go home or didn't have a home, you know, to go to. And so you have to have a comprehensive response to that. You also have to prevent the thousands of people who are teetering on being homeless from losing their housing. And so you have to have a comprehensive approach that gets people off the streets right away into temporary housing, but also addresses why they lost their housing to begin with. Explain a little bit to somebody who, who may not be as well-versed. When you say comprehensive, Let's just take, you know, a person, you know, maybe it's a 28-year-old mom. Uh, she's living on the street. She's living in a tent. What does a comprehensive response to her life look like that would have her get off the streets and stay off the streets that's not just criminalize her and lock her up? Well, using the individual, I would offer her temporary housing, but then I would want to know why she lost her housing. What happened? What was the situation? Was it dressed up economic? I mean, I'll give you an example. This one uh, man was telling me about the UPS person that delivered packages to his law office, you know, multiple times a week. Well, one day he was driving home and he saw her pitching a tent. And he went up to her and he said, you're a UPS worker. Why are you pitching a tent? She says, well, I don't have first and last month's rent. I can't rent a place. So he gave her first and last month's rent and she's fine. So if that woman who is unhoused is unhoused for a reason like that, then just address the economic issue. But maybe she's unhoused because she was fleeing a domestic violence situation. Well, so you have to address that. You need to provide her the counseling. You need to ensure her that she can have long-term housing because one of the reasons why women and maybe men go back with their abusers is because they don't have a place to live. And so they have to risk their life in, an, in a dangerous living situation so that they're not on the streets. It gets too bad that then they wind up having to you know, just live on the streets because living on the street is safer than living at home. That's a tragedy in and of itself. I mean, that's a comprehensive solution. Or if she had substance abuse problems, so you, we would want to put her in a drug treatment program. But what I meant when I said comprehensive in terms of the overall problem, you have to prevent people from losing their housing, becoming houseless. You have to get the people who are unhoused off the streets right away into temporary housing. You have to address why they were unhoused. And then you have to figure out what their future financial stability is going to be. So just putting somebody, you know, I've got you in a drug treatment program. I've got you in housing. But how are you going to support yourself when you're through with drug treatment? So one of the things that I would do would be to recruit those folks who are able to work and train them to do outreach to people who are currently unhoused. That is a comprehensive approach to the problem overall 
versus the individual. At the end of the day, that the root cause of this is profound income inequality and the gap between the rich and the poor getting more and more extreme. So we have to figure out how to address income inequality to prevent the next wave of people from falling into homelessness. One of the issues when it comes to people who are unhoused is a lot of folks are from the LGBTQ community, folks who grew up uh, in homes where their mom and their dad wouldn't accept who they were as human beings. Uh, That's a part of this issue as well, isn't it? No, absolutely. Uh, Young people being kicked out of the house are trans women and men. Absolutely. You know, that that is uh, a very much an issue. And by the way, one of the categories that I talked about was children in the foster care system. And so transgender young people who are in the child welfare system, in part for some of them, that's why they're in the child welfare system, because they were kicked out or they were LGBTQ and then their foster parent didn't want them. What, what can we do and what should we be doing for that part of the community that maybe we haven't done enough of? There are a number of nonprofit organizations that do this work all the time with all of the different sectors we talk about, but they're never given the resources to function at the scale in which they need to function. And so that's, that's one thing. We can certainly support those organizations. A couple of things you know, come to my mind as you're talking. One is you talk in too much sense. <laughs> Like you, you, you're, you're, you actually seem like you're trying to solve the problem and not just sweep yes. it under the rug. And I think that what you've got is, you know, a, a population now that's just so fed up with everything and everybody, you know, the kind of politics of just outrage and that kind of stuff, where somebody could just come along and say, eh, screw all that. We're just going to get rid of these people. What is wrong with that approach? Talk, talk, to, talk to somebody who's listening to me right now who's saying, you know what? All that sounds like some old liberal stuff. I'm tired of that. Just these people just need to get their act together, bring the cops out, sweep these these tents into the river, and let's move on. What is going to happen the next day after that approach is tried? Believe me, that approach has been tried over and over again, and it might give you instant gratification of the tent is removed from your block. But that person that is now been arrested is going to be in jail for three days or less, and it's going to be right back out. Now, maybe they don't go to your block. Maybe they go to the next block. But I guarantee you somebody else will fill the spot. And I believe that the city and the county has not had the mentality that says we are going to solve this. We are going to stop this. I always draw the analogy with the medical field. You know, a chronic disease, if you have high blood pressure, you don't think about it being cured because you know, okay, I got high blood pressure. I'm going to be taking this medicine for the rest of my life. I feel like the city and the county has approached the unhoused in the same way. It's never going to go away. Let's just figure out how we get a few of them off the streets every year. And while the city and the county was doing that, the problem exploded. It metastasized all over the place. And now it has become a humanitarian crisis. It has become an emergency that I believe needs to be addressed with the same mentality that you would address a natural disaster. I know some people, when they hear me talk about addressing the reason why someone is unhoused, their immediate reaction is, well, that takes too long. Do you want the problem solved or not? I mean, this is Los Angeles. We have the skills, the knowledge, and the resources to do more than one thing at a time. And so we can prevent people from losing their housing. We can get people off the streets right away. 
and we can address why they were unhoused. Until we have an approach like that, we're just going to be scratching the surface. We'll take a few people off the, the streets. More than that will come on the streets and we'll be in the cycle again. That's when people then get angry and say, just let's get rid of the problem. But even if you've lost your empathy, even if you just are like sick of it, it won't work. Mm-hmm. Right, right. As I think about, you know, kind of where we're going and the importance of Los Angeles in particular, where we have, as you said, so many brilliant people, so many creative people, so many people of big conscience. People come here from around the world because they're artists, because they're creative, because they care. I think it's so important that uh, we demonstrate that we can solve these problems. And I wonder what you would say to people who just say, it just, these problems are just too big. They just can't be handled. Can you give people a sense of, of, of why you're confident that these are solvable problems? Well, well let me uh, make this comment first. One of the things I think we suffer from in our American culture is we're very ahistorical. We're apolitical too. I mean, we think that being uh, a civically involved person means you vote. That's the floor. <laughs> I mean, you vote, but then you need to be involved in the political process. And I, and I focus on ahistorical because that assumes that this is the way it always was. And so if this is not the way it always was, then why would you say that nothing can be improved? You know, there is a generation literally that has grown up thinking that people living in tents and on the street is normal. You and I know that was not always the case. It exploded in the 80s, and you can tie it to the shredding of the safety net, and you can tie it to social, economic, and health problems that were not dealt with. And that is when homelessness became a part of our vernacular. I don't even remember using that word growing up. I remember that word coming into play in the late 80s. And now it has exploded, and people think, that, well, this is the way it always was. So that alone to me says it doesn't have to continue to be this way. Now, I also remember when we had drug treatment programs that you could stay in for a year, residential programs. We had solutions. Now, they needed to be brought to scale once an epidemic happened like crack, and we never scaled up the programs. In fact, we closed the programs. So why are we surprised (laughs) that we have the problems that we do? That's why it's so important to put things in their historical context, because when you do that, you can see what a solution is. So I would never accept that this is just the way it is. I think that's, that's very cynical. I do understand that people are cynical, but it's my job as a candidate. It's my job as an elected official to address that. You know, you've given your whole life to L.A. I mean, when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, you know what? That goes back to me as a child, uh, because I, I I used to sit with my father. My father turned me into a news junkie from the time I was like 10. I used to sit next to him and watch the news. And I, I watched all of those old people in the civil rights movement. They actually were college students, but to me, they looked really old. And I watched them sit there and get food dumped on them or get beat. And I was in such a hurry to grow up because I wanted to participate in that. I mean, when I was growing up, the whole world was on fire. I mean, it was the Vietnam War. It was the liberation movements in Africa. It was the independent movements in Central America. Asia, Africa, Latin America was all exploding. And so was Europe. And I wanted to be a part of that from the time I was a child. 
But I made a decision at a very young age that this is how I wanted to spend my life. But Van, when I was growing up, this didn't equal a job. So I had to, I had to have a job. And so I worked in healthcare. But my true mission was after working on the weekends. And then when I started Community Coalition in 1990, it was the first time I got paid to do what I was doing for free. And to me, that's like the best. And I tell young people that too. I say, find some, some work that you would do whether you hit the lottery or not because you loved the work that you mm-hmm. were doing. Well, you know, I feel like we hit the lottery with you. I mean, Thank you. I'm, I'm serious. Um, and you could yeah, look. You could just quit and walk away. I mean, at this point, people could just give you your flowers. But you're you're coming back to LA to solve some very very tough problems at a time where there's a big backlash against some of these ideas. And I have yet to hear <laughs> all the hand waving that's going on. Who has a better idea for uh, solving the real problems in LA than Karen Bass? I'd be, I'm waiting. I haven't heard it, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I'm glad, and I'm just glad that you're willing to come on the podcast and share your ideas with us. Um, if, if somebody wants to be supportive of, of your your run or or Karen Bass, what should they do? Well, they can go to Karen Bass for Mayor, KarenBass.com. We would love to have your involvement because this is going to be a grassroots campaign that is an example of the type of coalition work that I've done over the last 30 plus years. We want to bring people together across geography, ideology, race, class, gender. We want everybody to come because it's a real question as to, is Los Angeles going to continue moving toward the future in a progressive direction? Or are we going to have a snapback to the past? That's the two roads that LA is considering traveling. So come with us We have to keep this train moving in a progressive direction. We have to deal with problems in a comprehensive manner. We have to actually solve the problems because this is the second largest city in the country. We have everything we need here, but we need to come together and decide that we're going to solve it. Well, listen, thank you so much. I hope people are uh, listening very closely to your words and, and governing themselves accordingly. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Ben. It's so interesting to hear the voice of a real leader, somebody who has served at all levels of government, grassroots, state, federal, and, you know, who has the perspective that comes from doing it that way. Listen, trust me, when you hear somebody, if they've got an easy answer for everything, a soundbite for every question, what those people are, they're great communicators. Those are not great leaders because when you're a leader, and, and Karen Bass is really one of the best. She's just a national treasure, as you just heard. There's a depth there. She talked about constraint, that you can't just do what you want when you want to do it when you are actually in office. There are times when you actually have to shrink the program. You went there to grow, but you shrink it. You don't kill it. That way you can save it for later. That's wisdom. You don't hear people talking about that enough, the real reality of leadership, the idea that even at the highest moment, an ebb is going to come. And your rhetoric and your strategy and all that stuff needs to be uh, capable of dealing with the highs and the lows and not just the highs. You know, that's, that's something that you just don't hear people talking about enough, except people who've actually been doing this for a very long time and doing it very, very well. To me, the thing I've always been most impressed about her is that idea that you talked about that... You're building for for tomorrow you may not be there to see. 
um, that you are building institutions, that you're laying groundwork, that you're that you're advancing a process that's not about you, that again, you may not even get the glory for, but you can count uh, your efficacy in decades and not Twitter cycles. That's the kind of leadership on either side of the aisle that I think can be respected. And it's the kind of leadership where you don't see enough, you don't hear from enough, but you definitely see it and hear it anytime you hear from Karen Bass. This is Uncommon Ground. I'm Van Jones. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Taylor Williamson, Adesua Agbonile, and Lindsay Credible. Our managing producers are Laura D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for the show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Alex John Burns, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwinteman, Brianna Jones, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkeen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jockerman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.